Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. We've got a bonus episode today with interviews of two people. Alejandro Irarigori, the chair of Orlegi Sports, which owns Santos Laguna and Atlas of Liga MX, and Jeff Barger, the communications director for the Nordeca, the Columbus Crew Supporters Group, who discusses all the drama around the team's recent rebrand. We've had some great guests lately, including Stephen Mandis, Dwayne De Rosario, and Brendan Dunlop, and Emma Hayes. So check those out. Now, here's interview number one with Alejandro Irarigori. Our guest now is Alejandro Irarigori. He's the chair of Orlegi Sports, which owns Liga MX club Santos Laguna and Atlas. Santos is currently in the semifinals of the Liga MX playoffs. Alejandro, thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, more than happy to be with you and to share this, this conversation on your podcast. Really good to have you here. And we have lots to talk about, my friend, uh, including your thoughts on MLS and soccer in the United States. But I want to start with Santos Laguna. Uh, since you started running the club in 2007, no team has reached more Liga MX finals than Santos with seven appearances. But you've managed that success while keeping player salaries down to number eight or number nine in the Mexican League. What has your strategy been at Santos to do that? Well, uh, you're right. Basically, I, I think our strategy as a group comes uh, to from a different perspective. Obviously, we respect the sports. We, we respect the knowledge of the sports people. And that is really important. We also realize that football in particular has its roots on the community and giving value to the community. And that is the essence of football. Once having said that, everything else needs to be looked at and worked at as a business. And as a business, we, we, do, we have a triangle. So we believe that by creating infrastructure, structure and the right process, you have sports success, you have profitability and you have continuous growth. So that is like the, the magic, if you want to call it like that, behind the scenes. So there's no real magic. It's just running the business with passion, but not with, with, with fan passion. We leave that for the fans. And then also understanding, uh, which is difficult to understand, my, my, my view, my take in the sports team is that we are a bank, a bank where where the fans actually come to the deposit their valuables. So when you go and you deposit valuables at a bank, you expect interest rates, right? You, you expect something in return. Uh, so we have to give something in return to them. So in this equation, we try to maximize everything we do in, 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 in our commercial divisions, in our operations, in our logistics, in sports, and also obviously in finance. Now, having said that, uh, I think that it is really important to understand who you are, where you're sitting, and where you're going. So uh, it's easy for, for those who, in, in football, it happens a lot that uh, the people managing the clubs are there just for a, for a short period. So they actually leave their present with the money of the future and then leave the problem of the future for someone else. We don't do that. We're here for the long run. So we've been here now for, for 15 years. And what we're trying to achieve is to understand the reality of the situation. So Santos in particular is in a, 
in a city, which in our country is a small city, medium, medium city, I would say. So it's 1.5 million people, which by this, uh, by, uh, at the same time is built by people that created a lot of value in the desert. So, so La Laguna, where we are, is a desert. But many important companies of, of our country and even international companies have been born here and were created here. So those companies are committed to the community and those companies are committed to the club. So we, the first support we get is obviously from our fans, from our supporters, but also from the local companies that are national or international companies today. So that is a strength. Then as well, you don't have the amount of people coming like in other cities like Mexico City or Monterrey or Guadalajara. So your size is different. So we can't expect to have a 50,000, 60,000 stadium. So the right size is what we have in Estadio Corona today, which is 30,000 30, people. But we can control. First, we I would say from 2007 to eventually 2018, we were number 10, 11 in terms of revenue in the league. Today, after a TV deal uh, change for us, which, which was in two, 2019, we became probably six or seven. So, but we realized that. And again, we don't live with the future uh, uh, income in today. Actually, we create our future today. So by doing that and establishing that reality in our fans and in our culture, we're able to maximize everything we do. And yes, you're right. We're the team that has played more finals. The team just won before, one below uh, Tigres that has won more championships. And if we're able to conquer this uh, Clausura 2021, then we will still be breaking more records. That to me, more than records, is the value we create for our fans and our community. Yeah, you and I are speaking on Thursday afternoon and the this episode is coming out Friday morning. In between, there is a pretty important game, uh, a semifinal uh, first leg um, for you guys as you try and win a championship here. Uh, Santos Laguna beat Monterrey in the Liga MX quarterfinals and Rayados might spend the most money on player salaries of any club in all of the Americas. Do you take special satisfaction in beating teams that are spending that much more money than Santos does? Look, I think, I think that if you were to compare this with golf, right, one of the beauties that Mexico's league has is that no team has more than four times the revenue of the, of the less uh, revenue team. I think that makes it really competitive. And then the fact that we go into playoffs, as you know, and, 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 and the, the people in the U.S. are more than used to playoffs, it brings the challenge more, more to an equal stage. You're playing two games. So we have to do perfection. And, they, and if, they, I mean, if both teams play, play at perfection, we understand that we are in a disadvantage. But if we can control what we can control. So we need to play the perfect game. And that's what we're aimed to do all the time. And then hope that they won't. So it's like golf, right? So a mm -hmm. 10 handicap can beat a five handicap. Yeah, but a 10 handicap has to play its best, hoping that the other guy will not. So right, right. I'm not that concerned of what they will do. I'm concerned on, on the process. I'm concerned on the way. I'm not really concerned on, on winning. 
my concern, our concern as an, orga, as an organization is to, to give our, our maximum, the most intense, passionate in every, every single line of the organization. And then success comes as a result, not as a, not, not as a target, but just as a result of all the process. Interesting. Um, it's been two years now since your company also bought Atlas. That club has always been second fiddle to Chivas in the city of Guadalajara. Hasn't won a trophy, I don't think, since 1951. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, but good things are happening now. Atlas just reached the Liga MX quarterfinals. What have you been doing with Atlas and what are your plans for the club moving forward? Well, I mean, you, you know more details than I do, but you're right. 1951 was the last championship. I, I think Atlas, first of all, is in, in, in the second most important city in Mexico. And in terms of football, probably it's the, the most important city, the most important region. Uh, it's a beautiful city, as you know, uh, where tequila is actually made. And... Uh, and, and, and a lot of football players, a lot of great sports people. Canelo is from there. Lorena Ochoa is from there. Checo Perez running in Formula One is from there. A lot of the Mexican players that you know are from that region and in particular from Atlas. So the problem with Atlas, I think, is that uh, Atlas has three eras, in my opinion. So the first era comes from that 1951 through 1995, I would say, uh, where the sport actually was different. I think that the, the sport actually turned into a most much progressive uh, multi-billionaire industry around the world, probably in the 90s, early 90s, I, I would say, when the Premier League started to change into what it is today. Don't forget, before the 90s, the Premier League was a great league. It was it was, it was really complicated with the hooligans and all the issues and problems they had. Yes, with the passion of the fans, but it was not well structured. And Atlas never changed. So they kept this 124 ownership and uh, this four years uh, changing the management. And again, it's the perfect example of, the, of being irresponsible today with, with no regrets or, or concerns of the future. So they never built infrastructure, let alone structure or process. They were just uh, like, I would say, their concern was the today's game. And yes, today's game, for example, for Santos, is really important. But our concern is much more thinking in two, three, five years rather than today's game. So, so Atlas then changed uh, back in, in, in 2012, I think, where, where another group, Grupo Salinas, acquired it and saved it from actually going bankrupt. So Atlas was basically in bankruptcy. So these guys took the team, stayed with the team for, I would think, seven years and saved it. But they were not able to build what was needed in order to transform it. And that is where we come along. So we are trying to transform Atlas, to put it on speed against other teams to build infrastructure. It will be no more than 30, 45 days that we will announce our new training grounds, training facilities. We will be investing over $12 million on that because today we, we, we do have training facilities, but our youth development is in one place. The first team is in another place. The stadium is in another place. So we're trying to recreate what we know it's better for a team which is this triangle that I explained at the beginning, which is infrastructure processes, 
and structure. We're, we're heading in towards that. Now, Atlas reality is really different than, than Santos. The way I, I exam, exemplify this, uh, and I think it's probably the best way, I have three children. So two of them are twins, my firstborns, and then a boy. So they are 20, 22, the twins, and my boy is 21. All right, And they were raised in the same house, same mother, same father, and uh, fed the same way, educated the same way, which is the triangle for me. But then their personalities and their needs and their aims are totally different. So we have to treat them different, impose them different. They went to three different careers. Uh, one of them is already married. You know, so it's, it's like three different worlds. So Atlas and Santos are three different worlds raised by, by the same parents, but gi giving them this space of personality and their own situation. So Atlas today is probably 12, 11 in terms of revenue in the league. But Atlas is the team that can be fourth. It cannot be first, but I'm sure it can be fourth. And that's where we're trying to take it. Now, the way Atlas... Uh, uh, and I, just coming back a little bit to Santos, since the very origin, our design for Santos was Santos playing with a third of homegrown players, a third of foreigners, and a third of players coming from other Mexican teams. That is by design what Santos needs to do. Santos has the best infrastructure in terms of equipments, in terms of, of the place where they train to develop players. So we have to go out cherry pick players. And the only thing we do can control is to invest the most in every player that we're actually uh, uh, growing. But not only in sports, but and physically and nutritionally, but also in the way we educate them, in the way they, they turn into society with, with the time they spend giving time of themselves to society, to the community. And, and that is, that is uh, Santos. Now, Atlas is different. Atlas, in our view, needs to have 60% of homegrown players, 30% of foreigners, and only 10% of other players coming from other teams in Mexico. That is what we're aiming. Now, to do that, you need some time. So when we came into Atlas, all the young, good players were sold because they needed that money to survive. So today, all the players that you see playing in Atlas, homegrown players, they are very young still. They, they haven't reached a point of more than 60, 70 games on the on, on first division. So we you, you need to get that experience to become stronger and to actually uh, aggregate value to the performance of the first team. We're very happy because Atlas was the only one of the only, the first time in, in the history of Atlas that we qualify to the playoffs in every single division. Female team would make it, made it to the semifinals. We, uh, the first team made it to the, to the quarterfinals. The U20 made it as well. And the U17 made it actually playing the final now against Chivas. So, so we're, we're, you know, we're starting there. There's a great opportunity. Uh, there was a point where MLS uh, had this multi-ownership situation as well. And I think Mexico is, is crossing that point now. I think Mexico's potential is really big uh, in football and is very linked to the U.S. market and hopefully to the MLS. I think there's a lot for us to do together. Uh, and, and, and there is this opportunity for us as a group, as for Legi Sports, to help Atlas reach that point. And hopefully new owners will come to the picture. We have very few uh, foreign ownerships 
I think the fact that we changed and restructured the relegation and, and the promotion till 2026 helps a lot. And then we also own, as you know, in the expansion, which is the second division, the expansion league Tampico, who was champion in December and who is now playing the champion of champions and just arrived here to Torreón this morning from Tampico. We had a great game yesterday, winning 2-0 uh, against the current champion, which is a team from Jalisco, the state of Guadalajara. And, uh, and hopefully Saturday, uh, Tampico will be champion of champions, which would be a great success because he's the youngest player, the, the youngest team on the league, playing obviously with youth development players, both from Santos and Atlas. So you don't have a problem if Tampico doesn't get promoted? Even if they win? I'll tell you something. Uh, I, I don't think Tampico is ready because Tampico was abandoned for many, many, many years. And Tampico doesn't have today the infrastructure or the structure that is needed and the economics that are needed to compete. So the problem in, in the Mexican system before was that the teams coming up were not prepared. We had no good owners, financially speaking. And, uh, and then, you know, you come to the first division, there, there's nothing, I mean, you have to do everything your own because there are not collective agreements in terms of income as MLS has today or Spain or the Premier League. Each team has to look for its own sponsors, for its own TV rights. So those teams were most of the time failing. But not only that, the team that was relegated was not only relegated, but it was bankrupted. So that was really absurd in, in many ways. So in Spain, in, in the Premier League, the teams that are relegated, they have a three-year parachute so they can maintain their economy well. The teams that are coming up come from a very well-organized second division financially-wise. So all the problems we've had before, they come from the guys that come up and from the fact that the guy that comes down not only comes down, but is bankrupt. So now we're changing that. And we're starting to sell like... The first time that Mexican League sells collective TV deal uh, in, 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 I think, in, in our history in football was the expansion, this, the expansion league. So we're making those steps and that will grow, I'm sure, uh, quite a lot. And by 2026, relegation and promotion will be back, uh, hopefully, and, and, and we will be able to invest in Tampico and have them ready to be hopefully the first team to come up but in a much more controlled environment. Today, in, in the stakes that sports are playing, you cannot for, forget how important the, the, a healthy finance environment is for the sport. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're actually doomed, I think, and you're basically heading towards disaster in, ter in terms of performance and paying players and pay, you know, it's just, complicated. Economics have become really important these days. You mentioned Major League Soccer. We've heard about the possibility of Liga MX and Major League Soccer merging into one league at some point in the future. We had Don Garber, the MLS commissioner, on my podcast a few months ago, and I asked him about it. And it was interesting. He said that he didn't think FIFA or CONCACAF would block a potential merger. That was one thing. So clearly there's been talk about this. But Garber did say he thought that a merger was not a certainty and that it could take several years to happen. What do you think about a potential merger between Liga MX and MLS? 
Well, for, first of all, I, I happen to know Don for 14 years now. Uh, we we have a very good relationship uh, in a personal level and, and even better in a professional level. I happen to, to have spent a lot of time meeting and, and developing relationships with a lot of the MLS owners uh, for the last 12, 13 years, I would say. Uh, the reason, I probably need to go back a little. So, so my background is I, I went to live in Brazil back in 93, 94, uh, when, when Mexico was changing its, its economics and, and dynamics. And uh, I saw an opportunity. I was uh, very young at the time. I was 23, 20, yeah, 23. And uh, got married, moved there, and, and created a company with a Brazilian partner to do trade financing commodities uh, in, the raw, in, in, in the metal industry and the fertilizer industry, serving raw materials for the steel and aluminum uh, productions. And then uh, we, we, we did that very successfully in Latin America, opened an office in New York, opened an office in London, and as well in China. And living in Brazil helped me see football in a different perspective. So football in Mexico has always been important. In Brazil, it's important as well in a different level. Uh, uh, it's, it's really part of their daily life in, in many ways. But then as well, when I uh, spent a lot of time in London and lived in London, uh, it was exactly when the Premier League was changing. And I was, you know, I've always been a fan. I like sports a lot. And, uh, uh, and I, 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 I was, you know, just following up what, what was happening with the Premier League. And I saw them going to, China and India and, and you know Asia to get fans you know, from UK from that island they needed to get fans elsewhere right they don't have the the populations we have in the US or in Mexico and I thought to myself at that point you know Mexico one day will really really rocket because we have 120 million Mexicans pretty involved in football but then we also have 60 million Mexicans in the US today that are pretty involved in football so it's the only country that has that condition. We're the only country in the world that has that conditions. 2,000 miles of border with the US, uh, with wall or no wall. I mean, we are neighbors and we are almost cousins or brothers as countries. So we, we have the, the potential of these Mexican Americans in the US in terms of, of, of income is six or seven times more than the Mexicans that, that live on this side of the border. So that is how big that market is. So I thought one day Mexico will hit it bad. And uh, Mexico it's, has its problems, Mexico, Mexico's football, I mean. It took, them, it took Mexico a lot of time to, to, to restructure itself and to, and to go for, for this change that sports has all over the world. But it's getting there, probably slow, slower than we would like, but it's getting there every day. And so in 2005, when I sold my business, uh, is when I decided to, to invest in football. And this is how everything started. Uh, and, and so again, now the merger, I've been talking about this with Don for more than 10 years. Uh, probably the first, the first ones to say it were, were me and Don. And, and, and I, what I think is, and some of, of the owners, I won't mention the names because it's, it's not relevant, but I, uh, one of them, uh, his family created the Super Bowl. So you might know who I'm talking about. <laughs> that would be the Hunt family. So go ahead. <laughs> so, so, I, so I said to Clark one day, look, the way I look at this, 
in the short term, this is better for for uh, for the U.S. In the mid in the in the midterm, is better for Mexico, but in the long term, is better for both. So I don't think it, that merger is the right word, but taking advantage of of the world's situation, the fact that we join markets, the fact that for any reason the MLS has. I admire what what what's being done in MLS. I admire the 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 the, the passion and the commitment of of most of the owners to, towards growing the sport and, and the vision that Don has. I love it. Uh, I just think that the, the pace has been pretty slow. And then COVID hit hard because most of the MLS teams, uh, they're probably 50% or 40% of their income comes from, from game day, as opposed right. to Liga MX, where probably it, it is like 20 or 30. So COVID actually brought MLS two years behind. I mean, two, three, you, you name it. I mean, but it was certainly brought behind uh, in many ways. Now, how, how do you accelerate that? How do you recover from that? I think that creating an official tournament between both leagues, that's not merging, though, but creating that official tournament happening in U.S. soil will definitely uh, uh, be an explosion for both will be great for MLS will be great for the fans will be great for the competition and I think will put us ahead because it's not MLS competing against Liga MX it's us competing against Europe it's us competing against Asia it's us competing against entertainment it's us competing against NFL, MLB so if we actually become one in terms of facing this this challenge i think we we are all going to be better off the fans sponsors the leagues the players you know the investors i think this would be really really good interesting i like the idea myself um i wanted to ask you about something completely different a, a couple of years ago it seemed like your company nearly bought newcastle united in england uh what right. happened from your what happened from your perspective well, we, we, we are still looking for that. So we believe that the, uh, the, what we've created, which actually was not only applied in football, we applied it in a team in Colombia. So we were very, very close to acquire that team. Uh, the problem there, I'll explain you, was that the owners of that team wanted us as partners, as we were, 50-50, but they didn't want to become part of the whole organization. And I think that in the multi-team structure, you cannot have partners that are partners of one team and not of the others, because some decisions you make are, I mean, can, can be a call to disaster. So why this player went there and had success and what this, why this other player went to the other club and didn't, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to explain because at the end, we're human beings, right? And the players are human beings. And it's sometimes it's adaptation, sometimes it's, I don't know. There, there might be a hundred different reasons. So the way I look at this is you have to be partners at the level where everything is owned by the same group, and then you avoid that conflict. So that wasn't successful. But we also ran two teams in baseball. And at the end, sports are sports. Yeah, the rules are different on the pitch, but off the pitch, everything is exactly the same. And we did that very successful, successfully with Jackie's. So in the years we ran the uh, Jackies, we were 
three times champions of the league and two times champions of the Serie del Caribe. That, as you know, is really important. Is the, the Mexican champion playing against the Dominican Republic champion and the Puerto Rico champion and, you know, all the countries in the Caribbean that are obviously great baseball players and teams and fans. And we also uh, own Venados uh, in Mazatlán. And the same happened. And we were part of the creation of the new stadiums uh, for Venados and Yaquis. And now they are run by the people that were managing the teams with us. And I'm very proud of them because they've done a great job. and They continue to do a great job on the basis of our triangle uh, idea, which, which we understand we can take to other teams. Now, Newcastle, uh, I met Mike Ashley through friends. I understood that he wanted out. We reached an agreement. Uh, we shake shake hands. And then I'm sure that he wants to do it. Probably the people within his organization doesn't. So uh, I already had leased a house in, in, in Newcastle. I was me personally, I was moving to Newcastle. I think Newcastle was one of the first three or five teams uh, before the 95, right? Before that, this explosion in football around the world. And uh, I think that a team like that, the only way that they can catch up with teams like Tottenham or Liverpool or Chelsea is in a multi-team structure. Otherwise, how can you do that? So these synergies that you can create commercially, content-wise, uh, players-wise, uh, uh, sports science-wise, you know, financially, you know, all these uh, benefits you can apply and, and actually be a step forward toward these, these big teams that have taken advantage of, of the last 20 years or 25 years in, in, in a lot of manners. So twice we sat on the table, the first time for three months, almost completed the deal. The second time it was a shorter period. And it's one of those uh, frustrations that I will always carry because I think it would have been great for, for, for all of us, but we couldn't complete it. So painfully. Are there any other sort of big name teams, soccer teams outside of Mexico that you would? Yeah. And we're always looking for those opportunities. Uh, and, uh, well, we acquired 18 months ago or 20 months ago, Atlas. So we have a lot to do there. As I said, we're close to announce the, the building of these training facilities. We have a lot of ongoing conversations with owners on, on the MLS. I, I think that's another great opportunity that has not, probably because the way things happened with Chivas USA that didn't work at all. Uh, I think it was badly approached by everyone. And, uh, but I think the concept was great. So, yeah, I mean, I believe, we believe in a multi-team entity that can potentialize and, and, and put some power uh, on, on some teams. So we're always looking at opportunities, particularly in Spain and in, in, in the Premier League and in the MLS. Alejandro Iraragori is the chair of Orlegi Sports, which owns Santos Laguna and Atlas in Liga MX. Good luck in the playoffs with Santos, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Always, always happy to talk to this cause. And you have to come back. I know you were here in 2013. A lot of progress has been made in the city and, and in our Territorio Santos Modelo and here in the Stadio Corona. 
And uh, if we go to the finals, you have to promise me that you will come. So I'll have our team uh, <laughs> go fly and bring you down here. So if we're lucky enough and, uh, and, and our system works tonight and, and then on, on Sunday and we're in the finals, we have to make this commitment, Grant. You have to be here. And then we'll have a, a, a live podcast with your audience. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I appreciate the invitation. Can't wait to get back to Torreon. And yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Alejandro. I, I hope that means yes. Let's take a quick break from our interviews. This is the final weekend of the season in the memorable title races of Spain and France. And you can stream all the games on Fanatis live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch Copa Libertadores and top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Our guest now is Jeff Barger. He's the communications director for the Nordeca, the biggest group of organized Columbus Crew supporters. Thanks so much for joining me, Jeff. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, not a problem. Happy to be here. Uh, we got a lot to talk about here. You've lived through something very, I don't know if it's overselling to call it traumatic, but as a fan, I think it would be um, with the rebrand of the Columbus crew that took place in recent weeks. And then it became, the crew was lost. It became Columbus SC with a new logo. Everyone hated it. And already the new ownership has walked it back. Columbus crew will be the team's name forever. They say the logo has been modified. They put a 96 in the corner, added the crew. And also your organization, which has been through so much in recent years, you literally saved the, the, the crew, the team in Columbus uh, from moving. And now you've gone through this and we can all sit here and make jokes about, you know, saved the crew again. But that's a real thing. How are you doing and, and how have the last few weeks been? It's been an interesting couple of weeks. <laughs> um, you know, not a lot of sleep, but a lot of a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, honestly, I think that uh, yeah, it, the, the last couple of weeks have been an interesting kind of. I'm going to say final chapter to the whole Save the Crew saga, because uh, obviously with Save the Crew, we were, we were saving the team from this existential threat of of relocation of there just not being a team anymore. Um, and then with this most recent go around, we were really trying to save the team's heritage and, and its history and, and its identity um, going forward and, and trying to preserve that. So, um, you know, we, we, I've heard some people say like, well, the, the team wasn't leaving again. No, it, it wasn't. But in a very real way, it was, you know, kind of another death blow to the community. 
um, that we had to push back on. And so it's been a really interesting couple of weeks. And, and I think uh, coming out of it, which we'll get to, like uh, we're in a much better place. And we finally have kind of shut the door <laughs> on, on all of that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. So how did you personally experience the news of the rebrand? At what point did you know that the, the owners were going to remove the name crew from the team name? So I'm a bit of a unique case. Uh, most people, including um, the rest of the Nordeca board, found out uh, either Friday at a meeting that, that they invited the Nordeca board to or when it leaked publicly. Like that was, you know, the way that everybody found out. And it, it leaked publicly the day after the Nordeca board had their meeting. Um, we didn't leak it. I can say that honestly. <laughs> uh, we, but we, we knew we didn't leak it because we knew we didn't have to. It was going to come out. Um, uh, so I was a unique case though. Uh, in January, I was asked to come in and uh, basically sign an NDA to discuss a rebrand. And following January of last year, when there was this uh, big blow up about a potential rebrand, um, and the club had come out and said, hey, anything we do is going to be fairly minor, the name, the colors, everything is, is staying the same. Uh, I wasn't really concerned about it. I was like, oh, good. They're going to bring start bringing supporters in to talk about it and, and being the communications director for the Nordeca and, and also somebody who works in marketing. Uh, this is <laughs> I'm a natural first step, right? Um, so I, I came in, they had me sign an NDA, they sat me down, took me through their whole brand deck, everything, and then, and then showed me it. And I think I just sat there for five minutes, kind of hemming and hawing while I processed what I'd seen. <laughs> um, and they said, finally, they said, so, you know, you, you've just kind of been reiterating yourself. What do you think? And I think I said something on the lines of like, if you can just not do it, don't do it. And they were like, oh, and I was like, yeah, this is going to be bad. And and I think that was maybe the first time they had heard that. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I that was when I found out about it. Um, and then I spent uh, a couple of days processing and doing some research and then wrote uh, a report on it that I sent into them. And uh, after that, I spent the rest of the time uh, kind of lobbying the club to, to bring the rest of the supporters in, to bring the Nordeca board in uh, and talk to them about it because I was firmly under the impression that in the belief that this wasn't going to go well and that the only hope that they had for this to go even remotely well <laughs> was to immediately get everybody in the door and, and try to get them on board. Um, you know, and, and that was, that was how I learned about it. And that's how I spent the next uh, three months until they, they went live with it. Now, just in case if some of our listeners don't know what an NDA is, it's a non-disclosure agreement where you literally sign something that you are promising under penalty of law, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, it, it, it basically, had I said anything, they had a right to sue me, uh, both personally and professionally for, for that. So what must have that been like for you from a human perspective over a period of months uh, to have this horrible feeling about what the club was doing and not be able to share it with anybody? Uh, it was rough. I think the hard, the, honestly, the hardest part of that was while all that was going on, um, 
being one of the few people that knew, I kept trying to to push back to reiterate that like I don't think this is going to go well. Please, like if if you're not going to cancel it, delay it, and like let's at least try to do the process right. Um, and I kept lobbying for that, and I and and hoping for that. So I, I was trying to make progress there. And then on the same hand, we you know we're we're running into the final matches at, at Historic Crew Stadium. We're doing stuff like that. So I still have a full run of supporters duties that I'm I'm trying to get done. So it was a really uh, challenging time of finding a way to to work with the teams there, the team there, um, but at the same time kind of lobby them to reverse a major decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's something. I, I mean, so very quick negative reaction the second this goes public. Not surprising to you. You told them this. Um, do you think even then the club was surprised? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I so we had the Nordeka board meeting on that Friday, and I had I had said to someone that you know the worst case scenario is is that you guys bring these people in at the last minute, they get hit on the head with this, they're caught totally off guard because and and or this leaks and then it, they find out that way, and I was like because then they're just going to have a very personal visceral reaction. They're, they're just going to react, right? Because they're not going to have any time to process it and, and digest it and, and whatnot. And I, and I even said, like, look, I we did this on a Zoom call, and, and I sat there stunned staring at my computer for 10 minutes. So, like, keep in mind that everybody's going to do that. And, and unfortunately, that's what happened. So the meeting Friday was really bad. And I we got heated, they got heated, and I, I, I think that the reason that that happened was because, you know, for the people that were finding out about it on, from the Nordeka side, they were they were in shock. And I think similarly on on the club side, um, they thought they nailed it. They really did, and they thought like that they, they, we were just going to be like, and and I was going to be like, I'm wrong, sorry, and that was going to be the end of the conversation. Um, and you know, it didn't go that way, and uh, and it didn't go that way. And I think that, um. Coming out of that, they they were a little bit shell shocked. I, I really they walked out of the me- we walked out of that meeting and I walked down on the street and I said I'm really worried that they're headed for the bunker that they're going to do what Montreal did and just bunker down. Um, thankfully they didn't, but I think that they were in shock coming out of that. I mean, I think I saw this first in a story by Sam Stasekel in the Athletic. Was there actually a scene in that meeting where someone pulled off their shirt and showed off a tattoo of the Columbus logo? Yeah, yes, that that did happen. Um, someone on the board, uh, I won't say who, uh, has uh, has a tattoo of the crest on on their chest, and uh, they just—I mean, they honestly—they were just completely overwhelmed. They broke down crying, and they were just like totally overwhelmed. And they just said, "Like, what do you want me to do?" They kept asking that question, and they were like, "Well, you know, move forward or whatever." And he's like, "Well, what do I do with this?" And you know, because uh, that was—you know—he was—he was just completely overwhelmed, and and you know, his emotions just got the best of him, and, and it was, you know. He deeply regrets it. He wishes he could take it back. He was—he's very embarrassed about it now. Why? Um, you know, well, that's and that's what I said. I was like, hey, this is—you had a—I, you know, you had a personal reaction to this. You had an emotional reaction to this, and, um, you know, I don't want to say they—they they deserved it, <laughs> but at the same time, like, 
they needed to be ready for the fact that there was about to be a hundred thousand more people like you who had that same reaction. Like they, they needed to see that. So, you know, I, you know, I get that he's embarrassed, but at the same time, like that, that was a real defining moment in that meeting where I think they realized like, Oh, this is going to go bad. <laughs> well, for, I mean, just, this is just me talking here. I, you know, and I'm fine, you know, like, if, if he doesn't want to be known who he is, I think he's a freaking hero and <laughs> I love it. And I hope to see him reconsider and be on my television one of these weeks showing off his tattoo to the world. Everybody on everybody that knows who it is has said that to, to him. He is he has declined thus far. <laughs> Me just being the communications person that I am, I'm trying to convince him now that we're through all this and, and you know, we're in a much more positive place. I'm trying to get him to get the, the new crest tattooed next to the old one and <laughs> do it on Twitter. Like, we'll do it live on Twitter. Um, you know, but he has so far said no. But yeah, that guy is a, he's a legend, I think, for, for the rest of time. Yes. Um, and so the owners responded. Um, the club responded and how did that process go as you experienced it? So, uh, we walked out of the meeting and, uh, I was like, okay, I, I was right. <laughs> I'm going to be right. Um, cause you know, you never know. And I, I really wanted to be wrong. I really, like, I, I more than anything wanted to just have gotten this wrong. Um, so we immediately went and started basically drafting up like, Hey, when this goes live, what are we going to do? Like, you know, this is cause we knew this was, you know, save the crew too, you know, branding boogaloo kind of thing. Um, which is the joke we, we knew that was going to happen. So we started immediately figuring out our response. Um, at the same time, I, I wrote an email to their marketing team and, and, and a couple other people in the front office and just said, Hey, you know, this is about to happen. Um, I'm sorry for what I think is about to happen because I don't think there are any bad actors there. I think they were just trying to answer the question of how do we best market this club and, and you know, best elevate the brand and make it more visible and stuff like that and make it successful. Um, so I'm sorry about what's going to come your way on this. Um, when we're ready to work this out, you have my phone number. Just call me. We'll, we'll, we'll sit down. We'll talk it out. We'll find a way to, to go forward. Um, so I started that the night after that meeting. Um, and then it was a couple of days later, ownership reached out and they said, Hey, uh, we want to talk to you guys. We want to figure out where we go from here and, and what this looks like. Um, we said, okay, great. Happy to set up the meeting. Uh, and so we started setting up a meeting to, to do that. And between, um, the, that phone call in the meeting, uh, you know, front office people reached out, Steve Lyons, who's an amazing person, did an amazing, did an amazing job internally handling this, uh, reached out and was like, okay, let's talk like, you know, hard line <laughs> negotiables. Like what, what are you guys going to, you know, ask for and stuff like that. Um, so that we could try to go in there and really find a solution. Like that became very apparent from that first call from ownership is like, they want to find a solution. They want to figure this out and, and, and whatnot. Um, you know, I won't say who said it, but somebody in the front office just said, we know we messed up. How do we fix this? And like, so from, from, from the jump, they were, you know, in, in, in a much better position and, and mindset than I expected them to be. 
Uh, and so, yeah, it, that was kind of what happened over the subsequent week. And while all that was going on, we were just laying as much pressure as we could on publicly uh, on social media and the press to kind of keep incentivizing them to come to that table. Because I think in all of our minds, the biggest fear was that we were going to end up like Montreal. We were going to lose the name and the heritage and the history. Um, and that that community that we had fought to protect under Save the Crew was just going to disappear. Yeah. Um, so the owners decide to bring the name crew back. They are essentially keeping the same new logo. And yeah, what what's going on there? And is there any chance that the round logo might come back? So uh, that meeting where we, we went in and talked about that was one of probably the most interesting meetings I've ever been in. Um, as negative and bad as that first Friday meeting was, the, the, the Monday meeting was, was completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so positive. Uh, so we went in, um, we sat down. It was not just the Rudeka board at this point. There was only two of us who represented the board there. Um, Realizing that we needed the whole crew community involved in this, we went out and kind of built a, a delegation, I was calling it, uh, to do that. So we had representatives of the entire crew community from, from STC to, you know, everyone um, at the table and, and brought them in and sat, them, and sat down. And uh, they had a, started having a really nice dialogue with us about, hey, what is this? look like how we got here they just owned everything too like d haslam was just like we thought we were doing the right thing we just wanted to do the right thing here and we messed up and that's our fault and clearly the process wasn't right um and so we're all kind of cautiously optimistic and then they were like okay so we think we're on the same page here's where we want to go and they just you know throw columbus crew up on a screen and they're like so if you guys are okay with it we want to make this the name of the club this is what we want to be who we want what we want to do this is our identity. And everybody's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and then, and then switching to the crest, the logo, they, they said, here's the current, the current logo, the new logo. And they said, we've, we've heard feedback from everyone. We've heard feedback from you guys. We've been monitoring feedback on social media. Like we, we looked at the report you wrote, Jeff, like, you know, here are some concepts that we had. And they took us through, I want to say, two or three different mocks of, of what the logo could become. And uh, they were like, what do you guys like? What do you not like? Can we get your input, your feedback on this? Da, 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 da. And we kind of like, you know, dissected it a little bit. Um, and, and they took that feedback and then just applied it right there in the room and, and did it. And that's kind of how we ended up with the revised logo we have now. Um, my understanding was there were some logistics associated that, that kept them from just jumping back to the, to the round logo, everything from, um, you know, redesigning jerseys and stuff like that to, uh, like physical, actual physical things. Like, I don't think people realized how done this was. Like there was signage on the building when we went in, like there was signage on, on historic cruise stadium when we went into it with this on there, which is one of the reasons that we were like, okay, they're not rolling this back. Because, you know, there's a there's a sign now Um, and that sign probably wasn't cheap, Um, you know. And so we uh, that was kind of the thing is we we looked at it and we were like, okay, so they're not rolling this back. This is going to be a fight. And then when it wasn't, we were really shocked. Um, But there are some logistical things like that. I mean, like 
it's all well and good to say, hey, could we jump back to the roundel and go back to the old logo? Until you think about the fact that, like, there is brackets on the new stadium that have been mounted to the side of the new stadium to affix a sign to. And those brackets are spaced a very specific thing to accommodate a very specific shape kind of a thing. So, like, the answer is, like, probably not. (laughs) Like, you know, they're going to have to, like, not finish the stadium because they're going to be fixing all this stuff. Um, So, yeah, like, there there were some logistical constraints, I think, that, that kept them from just doing that. Um... Also, and I've mentioned this before, and this is nothing that I've ever heard from them or ownership or the front office or anyone in there, but that uh, obviously uh, prior ownership wore that crest on their chest when they went around town and they went into meetings with the city and with business partners in the area and, and had negotiations with Acura and all kinds of people. And that perhaps to those people, it doesn't represent a club or a team on the pitch that it, the things that it does to us fans. Like, to us fans, I love that crest because it yeah. represents, to me, Zach Steffen and Will Trapp and, you know, the 2015 run and, you know, everything good that happened under it. You know, even Save the Crew, to me, is associated with that. So I, I love it for all of those reasons. But maybe to, to those people in those boardrooms, it didn't represent that. It represented someone else. And, and a very negative experience with that person. And maybe that it was hard for, like, Dr. Pete to then walk into that same room with that same thing on his chest and be like, but we're different. <laughs> um, I, I've never heard that from anyone in ownership or anyone in the club. I've, I've heard that from people in the business community. That, and, yeah. so, and so, like, I think that there was a combination of maybe some logistical constraints with it and then some some other stuff like that that was going into it. They, they were kind of like, look, as, as much as we might like to, we can't go back. Huh. Um, the, the comment that I thought was the most amazing, which was which was fantastic, was uh, Dean and JW were both like, if the original crest, the, the 96 crest were still there, we wouldn't have touched it. <laughs> they were like, we, were just, we would have just left it. We didn't care. And I was like, and JW was like, yeah, I want to talk to you guys about vintage merch because if we start doing vintage merch on it, would would you guys think that would go over well? And we're like, yeah, that'd go over super well. Like, uh, so it was really funny because there was uh, this kind of acknowledgement that like they needed to move on, but at the same for a variety of reasons, but at the same time, like it was it had nothing to do with the history of the club or the, anything like that. I mean, it is fascinating to me. I mean, like, I was wondering that if, if like, it was because the that circular logo was connected to the pre-court era and so much of the pre-court era is looked at negatively now with good reason because he wanted to move the team out of town. Though, I, I thought the that logo was, like, probably, along with the 2015 run, the best part of the pre-court era. <laughs> yeah, it was the only good part of that era, really. Like, right, you know, like there wasn't a lot of good, and that was one of the few good pieces. Um, yeah, so I, I think that, uh, like I said, from a variety of, of reasons, from logistics down to potentially stuff like that, I think that they they were like, yeah, we're we're pretty committed to moving forward, and we were like, all right. Um, but here's the thing is, I and this is the thing that I, I, I say about this, as much as I loved the roundel, the, the round logo, um, I can't think of a single time where a club has rolled out a, a crest, a new crest, and fans have been like, I don't like that. And then within like 
a week they're like okay let's sit down and try to fix it and like you tell us what we need to do like i was like all right credit where credit is due <laughs> you know you guys have acknowledged that like this could be better and you're gonna you're gonna take the steps to make it better and so i uh i felt very positive about that i was like all right i can i can get on board with that i guess just to wind up i, I would ask we've seen now the chicago fire announce a rebrand that was not received well. And then the fire switched course and, and said, we're going to listen to the fans now. And so we eagerly await yeah, whatever that's that going to be. <laughs> um, and we've seen something similar happen, even with a faster turnaround on we, we screwed up with Columbus. But there does seem to be a disconnect in both these examples from what ownership and the clubs wanted to do, thought they were doing that they were doing well, and the the just not you know the, the horrible <laughs> negative response. <laughs> like, for would you have any lessons to sh that you think future like MLS clubs in particular, like from these experiences? Of like, so this won't happen in the future. Yeah. So the first one, I, I think, in terms of lessons is engage with your supporters. And as positive as that meeting went for getting the name crew back and, and them being willing in real time to throw away like literal 20 foot signage and start all over on the crest. Um, as positive as that was, the thing that I left most excited about was two things the first was is that they committed to hiring a full-time person that was going to be a supporter liaison that that was going to be their job full-time was to work with with the nordeca and other sports groups and, and whatnot um in order to make sure we get what we need done and then also represent us in the club uh i i think that's great because i don't think that there's enough of that the other thing which blew my mind was that uh, we agreed to, the Nordeca agreed to create a fan council that would be representative of more than just us. We're going to try to make it representative of the entire crew community. Um, and ownership, you know, DJW, Dr. Pete, agreed to be a part of those meetings periodically, like on a regular basis. Like they were like, you know, quarterly basis, we'll dial in and be a part of these meetings. And I think that's a huge shift. In engagement from from where we were to where we're going and I think that when you have that level of engagement stuff like this just isn't gonna happen right because the minute there's another whiff or a rumor of a rebrand and you have that fan council meeting and dr. Peter D or somebody dials in and they're like yeah we heard this rumor is it true and they're like well we're exploring options immediately they're gonna start getting feedback on what to do and not to do and and it's not gonna be filtered through you know, layers of bureaucracy and things like that. And so I think, um, you know, that type of engagement is huge. And I think that, so the first thing I think that clubs can learn out of this is, is engage with your supporters. Like these are the people that are here for you, rain or shine. Um, you know, Historic Crew Stadium doesn't have a roof. And, and the number of games that I have been in the pouring rain and freezing cold in that stadium, uh, I can't even count. And, and, you know, so, and, and I'm not alone. There's there's thousands of people like that. And so engage with those people because they're the core of your club. Um, and then I think the other thing is, is that there is this trend, this push in, in MLS uh, to what they view as, uh, you know, I've, I've heard Europeanification, MLSification, like whatever the term you want to call it is, make, make the sport seem more European, right? 
uh, instead of being the Columbus crew, we'll be Columbus SC, you know, uh, instead of being, you know, the Montreal impact, we're going to be a CF Montreal. Um, and I think that misses the core of why European clubs are successful because European clubs are successful because over decades, in some cases, a century or more, um, there has been a community that has been built around the club that has spread out m more and more over time and that stands arm in arm with the club. And, and the nicknames that have come out of that have come from supporters and fans that have then gradually been embraced again over decades by the club. And uh, the names of those clubs are sacrosanct to those people. And, and, and so... Um, Sure, you may have a, a, a club that's named after a, a, a city or, or a place or has the city name in it, but that's not what makes that club successful. The history, the heritage, and the culture are what make that club successful. And when you do these rebrands where you strip that out in MLS and you take out the name, you take out the history that that name represents and links back to, and you become CF Montreal or what have you, um, and you, you disregard that community and you, you cut that community off, uh, what you're doing is, is exactly the opposite of what, what's happened in Europe and, and the, and, and what you're doing doesn't set you up for the success you see in Europe. What it sets you up for is maybe some temporary success over the next two, three, five years with some heavy marketing pushes and some stuff like that. But ultimately, where are you going to be then? You know, without your core community, with a fledgling core community that you're trying to maintain. Um, and what happens if anything goes wrong in that three to five years? Like, what happens if something bad happens? I don't know, like a pandemic. Uh, then where are you? And, and that's not what you need. What you need to be a successful club, I think, is to have a real community around it to embrace your history and your heritage. And when you move forward from a marketing and branding perspective, you retain that identity as much as possible. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, those are the two lessons that they really need to learn is, is to talk to that community and then, and, and view that community truly as a partner. And then to understand that some of the things that they're like, well, it's harder to market the impact versus CF Montreal. Sure. Maybe it's a little bit harder, but that's what gives it meaning. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, while we're talking names, can you explain to our listeners uh, the origin story of the Nordeca? Uh, so, yeah, this is this is hilarious. Um, so the Nordeca originally didn't exist. It means North Corner in German. Uh, originally, supporters uh, for the crew sat on the North Wall and were kind of spread out. And when they constructed the stage, the various supporters groups that were that were already there and that were that were partners and fans and, and everything like that, they had already started to form like one cohesive community. Kind of got sandwiched into the corner, um, and so they really decided to like create a supporter section, you know, evolve a supporter section and, and called it the Nordeca, the North Corner, out of that. Um, kind of comically, there there from the very beginning, there appears to be no definitive way to say it um <laughs> you know like there you you have people say nordec you have people say nordeca uh i think the only one that everyone cringes at is nordeki like because there's an <laughs> e on the end they're like everybody's like oh no uh but you know the from the very beginning i i've talked i 
didn't become a fan in 96. I, I started going to games in, in 1999. I sat on the South side, so I wasn't even involved in that, um, at that time. But, you know, I've been, I've talked to people that are from 96 and they're like, you know, that have been fans throughout that have sat in the corner the whole time on the North side the whole time. They're like, it's Nordeca. And I'm like, cool. And then I talk to some people that have the same origin story and they're like, that's eh, Nordeca. It's fine. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay, so uh, I think for us now that are that are in leadership, the biggest thing we want to just do is is represent the crew community and have fun and and call it whatever you want to call it. Like, let's just go have a good time and celebrate this club and ideally win another championship. Yeah, I mean, the last question is pretty straightforward here. You're the defending champions. Uh, you have a new stadium opening soon here. Um there's some things to feel good about. And, right. oh, yeah. and, and so like, you know, what's your sense of this stadium and what that experience is going to be like going to games there? Uh, it's going to be unbelievable. Like absolutely unbelievable. I haven't gotten to go and tour it for a couple of months. I got to go when we did the, the kit reveal for this season. Um, and I mean, it's just, incre- I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's night and day. It's, it's, there is not a stadium like it in in Columbus. I probably not Ohio, to be totally honest. And I'm including things like football and and the NFL because it's an incredibly nice place. It's an incredibly cool place. But the attention to detail that I I see just like getting to walk around and and seeing it on tours is is nuts. I mean, like they really like looked at every single thing of like, okay, how does this work? Down to the fact that our lighting is angled you know, like the slants and the old crest. Like they were like, yeah, we, we took direct inspiration for that. That's why it's like this, not like that. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, but that's, I mean, it's just cool stuff like that, uh, that, that adds an entire other element to being in that. And and when you have ownership paying that much attention and, and investing that amount of effort and money into it, I think it's going to just be an awesome experience. It's going to be very Bart. loud. Nice. <laughs> nice. Looking forward to it very much. So Jeff Barger is the communications director for the Nordeca, the organized supporters of the Columbus crew. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Not a problem. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, if you have any more questions, reach out. It'd be a good time. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Alejandro Irarigori and Jeff Barger, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.